In March of 1978, Italy's former Prime Minister Aldo Moro was kidnapped in Rome by communist revolutionaries known as the Red Brigades. He would be held hostage for more than 50 frightening days. If you enjoyed these episodes and want to hear more like it, check out our series, Hostage. Every Thursday, we tell the stories behind the most gripping hostage situations and the people inside them. Follow Hostage for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode features discussion of kidnapping and violence that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. March 16, 1978, 61-year-old former Italian Prime Minister Aldo Mora stared in shock at his dead driver and bodyguards. They had been taking him to work when the car was ambushed by armed gunmen. Suddenly, the car door flung open. Aldo was lifted out of his seat and dragged across the narrow street. He shouted, let me go. What do you want from me? But his captors didn't reply. They simply shoved Aldo into one of three waiting Fiats and sped off. Inside the car, Aldo's kidnappers wiped the blood spatters from his face and blindfolded him. Then, one of the men informed him that he'd just been abducted by the Red Brigades. Aldo went numb. The Red Brigades were a communist extremist group and one of Italy's most dangerous terrorist organizations. They were known to be brutal and even murderous to get their point across. As reality sunk in, Aldo realized he might never make it out alive. This is Hostage, a ParCast original. Every week, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in kidnapping situations and what the human brain does when held captive. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Hostage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second of two episodes on the kidnapping of 61-year-old former Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro by communist revolutionaries known as the Red Brigades in Rome, Italy on March 16, 1978. Last week, we explored the socio-political turmoil surrounding the rise of Italy's Christian Democratic Party and its leader, Aldo Moro. We also discovered the driving motivations of the radical Red Brigades and one particular member, Mario Moretti, who led the kidnapping of Aldo Moro. This week, we'll track the high-profile circumstances of Aldo's capture. As the Red Brigades blamed him for everything wrong with the country, Aldo's government refused to negotiate for his release in a situation that ultimately backfired for everyone involved. On the morning of March 16, 1978, 
three small fiats raced through the streets of Rome. One of them bore 61-year-old Aldo Moro, Italy's former prime minister and a founding member of its majority party, the Christian Democrats. Aldo sat in shock. Today was supposed to be the day that Italy's government implemented a new coalition that Aldo himself had negotiated. But instead of being present for the historic day, he was being taken hostage by communist extremists, the Red Brigades. With no answers at his disposal, Aldo did the only thing he could, pray. He believed deeply in his Catholic faith, which had carried him through countless political struggles. And until he knew what his captors wanted, there was little else he could do. Suddenly, the cars turned into a private road. Up ahead, a gate was slowly opening. An unmarked white van waited inside. Aldo's captors dragged him out of the Fiat and shoved him into the van. Then they drove off once more. The police had been tipped off about three Fiats racing away from the site of the ambush, but no one paid any attention to the white van. Meanwhile, squad cars raced to the scene of the incident. As soon as they saw the bullet-riddled cars and Aldo's dead guards, they knew who'd been kidnapped. News traveled up the ranks, and soon the government leaders had been informed that their friend and longtime colleague was missing. By 9.30 a.m., approximately half an hour after the ambush, television and radio broadcasts were interrupted with a breaking report. The country went into shock. Aldo Moro wasn't just the former prime minister and president of Italy's majority party. He was also the man who'd masterminded a historic compromise between the moderate Christian Democrats and the Communist Party, a deal which was supposed to go into effect that very day. Everyone scrambled to make sense of the situation. Who would have kidnapped Aldo Moro on today of all days? Then, around 10 a.m., phones started ringing at a number of newspapers around the country. It was the Red Brigades. Each caller conveyed the same message. The Red Brigades had captured the president of Christian Democracy Moro and eliminated his bodyguards. And they promised that a full communique would follow. Meanwhile, law enforcement was waiting further instructions from higher up. But Italy's bureaucracy was famously slow. Hours ticked by before the Ministry of the Interior finally handed down their instructions. Roadblocks went up around Rome and across the country. Italy's airports, seaports, and land borders heightened their surveillance. In Rome, 5,000 police officers went door to door searching nearly every apartment in the vicinity of the ambush. The police tapped into the phones of Aldo's friends and family members in case the kidnappers placed a personal call. And they pulled out files on various known and suspected members of the Red Brigades for a roundup. It was the best they could do without knowing specifically who Aldo's captors were. But they were already miles behind. Meanwhile, Aldo's captors had parked their van in a garage on Via Moltolcini, a street in the southwest of Rome. Then they hustled Aldo into an adjoining ground floor apartment and removed his blindfold. Aldo looked around. He was surrounded by masked men in a small makeshift room with wooden walls, a cot, a toilet, and a wash basin. Though he didn't know it, the room had been built specifically for him. 
Aldo was naturally serious and stoic, and he remained calm in this strange setting. He was relieved to be at least indoors rather than exposed to the elements. But the bed and cleaning facilities also made him nervous. His captors clearly intended to keep him for a while. One of the men handed him a change of clothes and ordered him to hand over his business suit. For someone like Aldo, who wore his suits to family vacations at the beach, this was uncomfortable. He felt less like himself. At last, the kidnappers trickled out of the room, leaving him alone with just one masked man, Mario Moretti. Throughout Aldo's captivity, he would never learn Mario's name, and he wouldn't have recognized it anyway. Mario was a leader of a small underground faction of the larger Red Brigades group. It was he who had orchestrated this whole plot himself with as few comrades as possible. They had spent months planning Aldo's kidnapping, and it had been executed to perfection. Now it was time to get to work. Mario informed Aldo that he was in the People's Prison, a term the Red Brigades had invented for their political hostages. He told Aldo that he would be put on trial for the capitalist, imperialist state's crimes against the Italian people, specifically the last 30 years of government under the Christian Democrat majority. Aldo balked at this rationale. Sure, he was a prominent figure, but he was hardly an imperialist ideologue. In fact, he was quite the opposite. He spent his career working to negotiate compromises between political parties for the sake of Italy's people. Incredulous, Aldo said, why have you kidnapped me of all people? I'm a gentle person and I have always been a mediator between the right and the left. Mario scoffed. To him, Aldo was just another conniving politician who was playing dumb. He told his hostage to save his excuses for the trial. The difference between Mario's view of Aldo and Aldo's actual history as a political mediator demonstrates a larger psychological gap between extremists and their targets. According to terrorism researcher Allison Jameson, terrorists like Mario have often isolated themselves from the norm of society, upholding a so-called us-versus-them mentality. They no longer see those on the other side as humans with everyday emotions, but as a series of functions operating within an inimical homogenous mass, which is the enemy. Mario was no exception. In his mind, there was only the Red Brigades and then everyone else. To him, Aldo exemplified all the power of the Christian Democrat government, and he was furious at Aldo for creating a coalition with Italy's Communist Party, which he believed would diminish the chances of a communist state modeled after his beloved Red Brigadist ideology. Someone had to pay, and who better than Aldo? Meanwhile, in Parliament, the new coalition government was faced with a choice. Should they move forward without Aldo or wait until the hostage situation had been resolved? but no one had any idea how long this might take. Besides, the coalition was Aldo's brainchild. By moving forward, they could honor him while also showing the Red Brigades that they could not be intimidated. And so they chose to move forward. Normally, a new government would take days or weeks to reach the compromises necessary for the confidence vote. But today, 
Everyone was eager to demonstrate their support for Aldo and his historic compromise. The new government, led by Prime Minister Giulio Andreotti, a fellow Christian Democrat, immediately gained an overwhelming vote of confidence. All across Italy, people expressed their support for Aldo Moro, even those who didn't always agree with his politics. In the coming days, trade unions, who were normally ambivalent about him, would go on strike for his release. Even avowed communists felt the Red Brigades had been too extreme. The overwhelming public sentiment could be summed up in its simple recurring slogan, Terrorism No, Moro Yes. Two days later, on March 18th, an editor at one of Italy's biggest newspapers, Il Messaggero, got a call from a Red Brigades member. He gave the editor instructions to go to a certain square where they had hidden a manila envelope. Two journalists raced over to retrieve the package, which contained a photograph of Aldo in front of a Red Brigades banner, as well as a communique from the kidnappers. The next morning, Il Messaggero published the Red Brigade's photo and message. Italians everywhere breathed a small sigh of relief. Aldo was alive, and judging from the sardonic expression on his face, he was being treated as well as could be hoped. But the communique was less hopeful. In it, the Red Brigades accused Aldo of being the political godfather of international imperialism in Italy and the unquestioned theoretician and strategist of the Christian Democrat regime. They promised to put him on trial for his crimes and those of the government he represented. It was a tall accusation to make, but that was it. To everyone's surprise, the communique made no ransom demands, no money, no release of imprisoned comrades, nothing. Under these conditions, there was nothing the Italian government could do besides wait. They were just as helpless as Aldo. Coming up, the Red Brigades let Aldo speak to the public. Now back to the story. By March 19, 1978, Aldo Moro had been held hostage for three days by members of the Red Brigades. The group had announced their plan to put Aldo on trial for the crimes they believed his party had perpetrated against the Italian people. But so far, they had made no demands in exchange for his life. As strange as this seemed, the Red Brigades were demonstrating a primary motivation for high-profile hostage situations. Sociologist and public policy expert Lawrence C. Hamilton explains that political terrorist groups use kidnappings as a way to gain a public platform and commit psychological warfare against the more powerful government they're attacking. In this case, Mario Moretti and his Red Brigade comrades kept the public waiting on tenterhooks, which allowed them to dominate the public narrative and show off their leveraging power. While Italy waited to find out what the Red Brigades wanted, law enforcement rounded up Red Brigadists across the country. But Mario and his comrades had worked in such a close-knit and insular group that none of the other Red Brigadists could provide helpful information. Meanwhile, the police continued their search for Aldo's whereabouts, but they knew from experience that they had little chance of succeeding. Italian law enforcement wasn't particularly known for its competence or efficiency. In fact, between 1969 and 1990, 
Only 86 out of 654 kidnapping victims were rescued in Italy. While these futile efforts continued, a debate was raging in Parliament over what to do. Many of Aldo's colleagues were also longtime friends with him and his wife, Eleonora. She and her family begged Aldo's colleagues to do whatever it took to bring him home. But the politicians also had to weigh factors beyond Aldo's personal well-being. After all, they were dealing with a new, fragile coalition that couldn't afford to fail. Aldo's own party, the Christian Democrats, divided into two camps. One side wanted to support the Moro family and do whatever it took to get Aldo back. Not only was he their valued friend, he was a lifelong public servant. After all he had done for their party and Italy's government as a whole, they couldn't simply abandon him to violent guerrillas. Meanwhile, other Christian Democrats felt that the choice was clear. They couldn't negotiate with terrorists, even if a powerful man had been kidnapped. Doing so would suggest that some citizens' lives were worth more than others. Besides which, they didn't want to give the Red Brigades any form of satisfaction. To do so would not only give the terrorists a major PR win, it would demonstrate that kidnapping was an effective way to extract concessions from Italy's government. Suddenly, every politician's life could be in danger. Italy's political climate could become a free-for-all as left and right extremist groups tried to kidnap the most valuable hostage for increasingly higher demands. The newly empowered Communist Party concurred with this no-negotiations policy, and they had their own separate reasons as well. The Communist leaders knew that the party's mainstream viability would be at risk if they appeared to be soft on the Red Brigades. Any concession on their part could be misconstrued as an affiliation, and they couldn't risk losing their newfound voice in the government. All in all, both the Christian Democrats and the Communists were concerned about their new coalition. A lot of political capital had been expended to get it this far, and although they hadn't anticipated Aldo's kidnapping, they knew that Italy's extremist groups were all eager to see the coalition crumble. And so, within a week and a half of Aldo's kidnapping, the Italian government, men Aldo had known and worked with for most of his life, felt they had no choice but to decide on a policy of fermezza, or firmness, If the Red Brigades ever made a demand, they would take a hard line and refuse. Meanwhile, Aldo was adjusting to his first week in people's prison. He had requested a Bible, which his captors quickly acquired. Now he was reading it every day and praying regularly. The Red Brigades were virulently anti-religion, but they were surprised by Aldo's dedication. In their minds, Aldo was an evil figurehead of the Christian Democrats. They had never expected him to be genuine about his faith. For his part, Aldo realized that his captors were not entirely unreasonable. In addition to the Bible, they gave him homemade meals and ensured that he bathed and changed into clean clothes regularly. As these first weeks of captivity unfolded, Aldo became more acquainted with his captors, specifically their masked ringleader, Mario Moretti. Throughout his captivity, Aldo was only allowed to talk to him. From the onset, Aldo had been warned he was being put on people's trial, and Mario seemed to be the judge. He peppered the older man with lots of questions about the government, 
the Christian Democrat Party, and about Aldo's personal history. It was meant to be an interrogation, but Aldo was far more politically versed than his opponent. Their conversations inevitably became debates about political philosophy and the correct role of the government. By the end of the first week, both men had discovered that neither was who they had expected. Mario was surprised by Aldo's devotion to his family and his open-minded nature. Moreover, Aldo was candid about the failings of the Christian Democrat-run government, which came as a shock to Mario. Aldo, in turn, came to regard Mario as intelligent and well-read. His complaints about the government's failings were legitimate in spite of his extremist fantasies. Mario had spent years dedicating himself to the Red Brigade's militant interpretation of Marxism-Leninism, and he simply couldn't give up his beliefs that the government was plotting to exploit and subdue the masses. This amused Aldo. For decades, he had witnessed the interworkings of Italy's mildly incompetent government. It was hard to imagine them carrying out grand conspiracies, much less organizing them. In fact, Aldo was already anticipating the circular arguments that Parliament was having in regards to his capture, and with this in mind, Aldo began plotting his own release. Perhaps it was self-preservation, a concern for Italy's government, or both, but Aldo was determined to have a hand in his release. As a skilled negotiator, he understood that this would likely involve some form of concession, especially now that he had witnessed Mario's ideological fervor. On March 24th, Aldo asked Mario's permission to write two letters, first to his family, and then to Italy's Minister of the Interior, Francesco Cosiga, asking him to be open to hostage negotiations. Mario was wary of the request. After all, he still didn't trust Aldo. But in the end, he relented, hoping the letters could help his cause. As Aldo penned his letters, the Red Brigades reached out to the press a third time. On March 25th, they contacted four newspapers, demanding their second communique be published. The press was more than happy to oblige. Unlike the last communique, this new statement had little to do with Moro. Rather, it ranted about the last 25 years of the Christian Democrat rule and the crimes the Red Brigades believed that had been perpetrated against the people. But just like the last letter, no demands were made. It simply stated that the interrogation of Aldo Moro had begun. The Christian Democrat leaders didn't know what to make of this piece of information. It was likely intended as a threat, insinuating that Aldo might share all of their secrets with the Red Brigades. Meanwhile, several politicians continued to argue Moro's case, believing they could encourage the Red Brigades into negotiation. But they remained outnumbered. Then, on March 29th, two weeks after Aldo's kidnapping, his letters were delivered. His note to his wife, Eleonora, was kept private. But the letter to Interior Minister Cosiga was also published in several newspapers by his captors, alongside a third communique. In his letter to Cosiga, Aldo urged his colleague to figure out a way to get him released, offering examples of successful prisoner exchanges. He even suggested involving the Vatican, 
As an independent government with a humanitarian mandate, the Vatican could potentially spare the Italian government the embarrassment of negotiating with terrorists. Italians everywhere read the letter and realized that Aldo was worried for his life. The overwhelming public sentiment was that the government should do something to rescue the former prime minister. This widespread opinion weighed on the government. Dissenters to the no-negotiations policy petitioned to involve the Vatican, but Prime Minister Andreotti argued that it was worthless. With the letter being public, it was just a roundabout concession. And, of course, there was the question of validity. They recognized Aldo's handwriting, but it was possible that he'd been forced to write it. And the next day, the press leaked word of this uncertainty. When Mario showed Aldo the headlines, he was furious. He'd specifically written to Cosiga as a friend, believing his voice and rationale would be recognized. He concluded that his friends were too cowardly to accept the political responsibilities of negotiating with terrorists. Aldo immediately set out to write another letter, this time to Benigno Zaccanini, the party secretary of the Christian Democrats. He tailored it to address both Zaccanini specifically and the wider audience who was sure to read it. This time, Aldo made it clear that his captors had threatened his life if the government wouldn't engage. He told his friend that he was enraged by the headlines regarding his last letters. If there was anything wrong, Aldo argued, it was that he'd been a prisoner for 15 days without his friends fighting for him. He gave examples of times when he had been in favor of prisoner exchanges and negotiations. And he signed off saying he just wanted to get home to his family. He was unwilling to be a martyr for his cowardly party. The letter was published on April 4th, nearly three weeks into Aldo's captivity. Zaccanini wept at his friend's words, but the prime minister and the minister of the interior reminded him that they still couldn't be sure it was really Aldo's voice. They had to stay strong and make it clear to Aldo's captors that kidnapping was a fruitless effort. To add to their confidence, the government had received a police report assuring them that the Red Brigades had a history of only killing in self-defense or as punishment. Aldo Moro certainly wasn't a threat. The politicians took heart that the Red Brigades would soon give up and let him go. But this was wishful thinking. Mario and his comrades were deadly serious, and they would stop at nothing to prove their point. Coming up, Mario's Red Brigades run out of patience. Now back to the story. By April 4, 1978, Aldo Moro had been held captive for nearly three weeks by communist extremists known as the Red Brigades. He had written his own letters to persuade his colleagues to open hostage negotiations, but the government remained outwardly firm. They couldn't risk appearing weak and damaging the newly formed coalition between the Christian Democrats and the communists. Aldo didn't know it, but there was a faction in the government that was trying to open lines of communication with the Red Brigades. The Socialist Party, led by Bettino Craxi, had almost been squeezed out of parliament by the recent coalition. And while the others turned their back on Aldo's pleas, Craxi saw an opening for the Socialist Party. 
He contacted a socialist lawyer who was representing the dozen other Red Brigade leaders currently on trial and asked him to find out if any of these men could contact the kidnappers. He hoped to establish a conversation. It was a bold move, but Craxy was a shrewd politician. He saw that the government was already succeeding in convincing the Vatican to backtrack on its offer to mediate. And yet, most Italians were in favor of Aldo Moro's release. By advocating for Aldo, the socialists could win a lot of public favor. Meanwhile, Aldo was getting increasingly frustrated with his colleagues. He had spent much of the past weeks ruminating on what mistakes the Christian Democrats had made over the years. And while he still believed in the party, Aldo knew firsthand how weak and craven many of the men he'd worked with all these years were. The fact that they hadn't stood up for him only furthered his distaste. As the days passed, Aldo had no interest in dying for these men and their cowardice. So he continued writing letters, calling out these men he'd once called friends. But his words made no difference. And Aldo wasn't the only one to feel exasperated. His captor, Mario, was amazed that after so much time, no one in the government had initiated a conversation. His kidnapping was only drumming up more public ire against the Red Brigades, and his people's trial wasn't quite the bombshell he'd anticipated. In fact, through his conversations with Aldo, Mario had gotten no information on the grand conspiracies he and his fellows in the Red Brigades had expected. Rather, he'd heard about the ineptitude of career politicians, driven by their own desire to stay in power, yet unable to accomplish much. At the same time, Aldo hadn't shied away from personal responsibility. He admitted that he'd made mistakes and that as party leader, he was partly responsible for anything the institution did. It was an honorable position, but it was to Aldo's disadvantage. By assuming this responsibility, he allowed Mario to continue regarding him as a representative of all that he loathed in the government. On April 15th, one month after the kidnapping, Mario decided Aldo's trial was over. He was most certainly guilty. Mario and the Red Brigades released another communique to the press. It condemned Aldo, saying, his guilt is the same as that for which the Christian Democrats and their regime will in the end be beaten, dissolved, and dispersed on the initiatives of the fighting communist forces. There are no doubts, Aldo Moro is guilty and is therefore sentenced to death. Across Italy, people panicked. Amnesty International put out an appeal to the Red Brigades to release the politician. A group of notable international figures put together a petition calling for negotiations. Even the Pope stepped away from the Vatican's line, urging Italy's government to negotiate, but nothing seemed to change their mind. Five days later, on April 20th, the Red Brigades published a new communique. It was their last effort and their first time giving a demand. Up until now, they had kept their pride intact, hoping Italy's government would make the first move. But now they were desperate for some sort of payoff. They asked the Christian Democrats to open negotiations for a prisoner exchange, and they set a 48-hour deadline. After that, Aldo would be executed. 
but the party leaders still refused to engage, and the two-day window came and went. Everyone hoped that Aldo's death wouldn't be the next headline. Two more days passed, and on April 24th, a new communique was issued. It listed the names of 13 imprisoned Red Brigade's comrades. Aldo's freedom was promised in return for their release. To the socialists, who had been trying to open their own hostage negotiations, it felt like an insult. The release of 13 known terrorists was a flagrantly absurd ask. But to the rest of Italy's government, it was reassurance that they had done the right thing. By ignoring the Red Brigades, they had forced Aldo's captors to come to them. Perhaps they could eventually wear them out altogether. And so, instead of negotiation, Prime Minister Andreotti reaffirmed that the new coalition would not be cowed by terrorists. Aldo himself had spent years building Italy's government. They would not let his captors bring it down. News of the government's response reached Aldo, and on April 29th, he wrote a number of letters addressed to his former colleagues. He declared that he was officially resigning from the Christian Democrats. He chastised his colleagues for behaving so callously, and he expressed his embarrassment at having spent his life among such depraved men. He said he was grateful that his experience with the Red Brigades had revealed the true colors of the men he thought to be trusted friends. In one last attempt to appeal to their conscience, Aldo urged his former colleagues to take the bargain being offered by the Red Brigades. One imprisoned comrade in exchange for himself. In conclusion, Aldo said that he did not want a state funeral and he did not want any Christian Democrats to attend. He was finished with them. Meanwhile, his captor, Mario Moretti, was hard-pressed to make a move. Every day, he and his comrades were appearing weaker to the public by not following through on their death threat. To make matters worse, he had seen the public favor surrounding Aldo. If Aldo were executed, the movement would be blamed for his death and potentially lose support. This could in turn be an excuse for law enforcement to go after leftist groups in general, which would further harm their cause. And so, the afternoon following Aldo's last letter, his wife, Eleonora, received a call from Mario Moretti. Mario simply told her he was a representative of the Red Brigades, and he urged her, on behalf of her husband, to exhaust all means available for his release. Eleonora explained that she had done everything she could, and she pleaded with Mario to listen to her. But it was no use. Mario stated that unless the Christian Democrats themselves made a concession, Aldo would die. Meanwhile, the socialists were scrambling to mediate between the Red Brigade's leaders and the government. At last, the prime minister intimated that perhaps they could be convinced to do a one-to-one prisoner exchange if they could find the right prisoner. When the socialists learned that one of the women on the list of 13 prisoners was terminally ill, they knew they'd found the answer. But they still hadn't fully convinced Prime Minister Andreotti or the rest of Parliament. A week later, on May 6th, Eleonora Moro received a farewell letter from her husband. He had been in captivity for nearly two months. 
all of the righteous anger of his earlier letters was gone. He simply told Eleonora that he loved her and that he would die soon. She knew he was telling the truth. Eleonora took his letter to the Socialist Party and to another former prime minister of Italy, Amintore Fanfani. She begged them to save her husband's life, and they promised to continue to do everything in their power. Finally, Fanfani and the Socialists managed to set a meeting with the prime minister for May 9th, three days out. With Fanfani's support, they hoped to convince the prime minister Andreotti to at least make overtures in favor of negotiations. But it was too late. On May 9th, the same morning as the scheduled meeting, Mario gave Aldo back the suit he'd been wearing the day he was captured. As he got dressed, Aldo prayed. He prayed for his family, for the people who had been working for his release, and for those who had betrayed him. And he prayed for his own soul. Then he followed Mario out of his room. Around noon that day, Aldo's assistant at the University of Rome received a call. The voice on the other end identified themselves as a Red Brigade's member. They said Aldo's family could find his body in the trunk of a red Renault parked on Via Caetani in the middle of Rome. The police made it to the car first. When they opened the trunk, they found Aldo's body. He'd been killed by two gunshots. As the police called in the grisly discovery, they realized something even more chilling. The car was parked exactly halfway between the offices of the Christian Democrats and the Communist Party. The Red Brigades had wanted to make a statement. Aldo's death was the government's fault. A few days later, Aldo was buried in a small family ceremony in a village north of Rome. Per his wishes, none of his former colleagues were invited. The government did, however, hold a big state funeral for him a few days later. Aldo's family did not attend. The historic compromise that Aldo had negotiated between the Communist Party and the Christian Democrats fell apart the following year, and the Christian Democrat Party became further embroiled in scandals in the years to come. In the early 1990s, it ultimately collapsed amid corruption investigations. Thanks again for tuning into Hostage. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals like Hostage for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Hostage on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Hostage was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, 
and stars Irma Blanco and Carter Roy. 